I want to thank God for the privilege and the opportunity He's given me to share His Word with you this evening. I just want to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for your love and for your prayers, especially in the last few months. Back when I had a health crisis in May, I was in the hospital, and many of you prayed, many of you called, many of you sent an email or a text, and it was just so encouraging. And I want to thank you for your love, for your concern, and for your prayers. And I also want to thank you for your prayers for my recent trips to England and to Belgium. God really blessed the ministry because you prayed, and because you encouraged, and because you sustained me. And so I want to thank each and every one of you. Uh, what a joy it was actually to meet uh, Bolly Uncle, uh, Bolly Auntie, and uh, JP Uncle in Belgium. They picked me up from uh, Eastern Belgium and brought me to Brussels, and I got to spend the whole Sunday evening with them. And I got to preach at the church that they used to attend for many years. In fact, they arranged for me to preach there, and it was just an added joy to the ministry trip to see them there. So it's wonderful to be here, and I thank God for this privilege to preach His Word this evening. Before we get into his word, I'm just going to sing a very familiar hymn, a very familiar song. You probably know this song. You've probably heard it numerous times before. The song really talks about how in our life stories, sometimes we face things, we face situations and circumstances that we don't necessarily understand. And we ask, why me, God? Why my family? And we have numerous questions that we ask over and over again when we face these situations. And this song basically gives us the assurance from the Word of God that though we may not understand it now, farther along, in the future, God promises that we will understand why. Oh 
in clouds of glory when he comes down from his home in the sky then we see, a pastor was getting ready to step up to the pulpit to preach his Sunday morning service when Mrs. Jones, the wife of a local fisherman, handed him a note with a prayer request that she wanted him to share with the entire congregation. And this is what the prayer request said. Bill Jones, having gone to sea, his wife desires the prayers of this congregation for his safety. Bill Jones, having gone to sea, his wife desires the prayers of this congregation for his safety. In his hurry, the pastor overlooked the right punctuations, and this is what he read to the congregation. Bill Jones, having gone to see his wife, desires the prayers of this congregation for his safety. You see, where life gets punctuated often reveals a clue to the meaning that will be derived. Where life gets punctuated often provides a clue to the meaning that will be derived. And who punctuates our life will determine the meaning of our life story. It will determine the meaning of our life story. And so this evening we're going to look at the story of a woman whose life was punctuated by an encounter with Christ. But before we look into his word, let's close our eyes for a moment and look to him in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you for this beautiful evening. We thank you for gathering us here. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this place. Even as we delve into the truth found within your word, we pray that you will speak to us. Speak to us, Lord and help us to abide by your word, and help us to live a life 
that is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You see, the Bible ultimately is a story. The Bible is a story. Only when you and I see the Bible as a story from Genesis to Revelation, only when we see it as a story will we see the facts that constitute our lives within the context of its life-giving narrative. Only when we see the Bible as a story. Because it is a story. It's a story of God's love. It's a story of God's grace. It's a story of God's mercy. It's a story of God's forgiveness. It's a story of God's creation. It's a story of God's redemption. And I could go on and on and on. But you know what the wonderful thing is? His story penetrates our story. It penetrates your story and it penetrates my story. And he intertwines his story with ours, imbuing it and punctuating it with meaning and vitality. His story enters our story. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the scriptures. That's the beauty of the Bible. Socrates once said, an unexamined life is not worth living. An unexamined life is just not worth living. Do you know what Jesus would say? He would say an unexamined life is still worth redeeming. That's the difference between Jesus and Socrates. He said an unexamined life is not worth living. Jesus would say even an unexamined life is always worth redeeming and then redirecting so it can be made worth living again. So it can be made worth living again. And that is essentially what Jesus does in the life of the Samaritan woman. He takes a life, he takes a life story that has been mangled by sin and shame, and he redirects it by his glory, by his beauty, by his love, by his grace. And he brings about a life imbued in his holiness. A life with new meaning. A life with new vitality. A life not constrained by the harassments of the past. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 4, verses 4 to 48. John 4 4 to 48. It's a very familiar passage. You've probably read it numerous times, and you've probably heard many sermons on this particular passage. So I'm not going to be reading it to you, but please keep your finger in that portion of the Bible because I'll be making constant references to it. John 4, 4 to 48. It's a very familiar story. We all know the story. Jesus is sitting by the well all alone, and a Samaritan woman comes to draw water from it, and he begins to engage her. He begins to engage her. Let me just make a comment before I get into the content of the message. The first thing that we see in this particular portion of Scripture, the first thing that we see in this passage is this. We see that Jesus was alone. Jesus was alone. And we see the importance of solitude in the life of Jesus over and over again. He often left the crowds, his disciples, and those who followed him in order to be alone, in order to be in solitude in the presence of the Father. 
in the presence of the Father. We see him doing it over and over again in the Gospels, alone in solitude in the presence of the Father. You see, in a world that emphasizes the need to be constantly connected, it's very important for you and I as Christians to sometimes disconnect and to get into that place of aloneness, that place of solitude in the presence of the Father. In the presence of the Father. We often forget how important it is in our lives, in our spiritual journey, in the defining of our life stories, to get alone in the presence of the Father. Do we even understand how these technological environments are rewriting our life stories by reordering our priorities? What often starts off as, as innocent conveniences become indispensable necessities. They become indispensable necessities, and we get to a point where we cannot live without a cell phone or an iPad. And then we begin to wonder where along the path we lost the vibrancy we once had. Those moments of quietness in the presence of God, those moments of solitude begin to disappear. And we begin to wonder where we lost that vibrancy in our spiritual life, in our walk with Christ, in our life stories. Do you really want your life story to have impact? You want your life story to matter for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ? Practice what Jesus practiced. Practice the spiritual discipline of solitude, and God will speak to you, and God will lead you, and God will guide you according to his will and according to his purposes. You see, there are many things that we can look at, many things that we can meditate on as we see this particular portion of scripture. I just want to point out six brief ideas that I find in this portion of Scripture that will help us as we seek to emulate the Master. Please look at your Bibles. John chapter 4, verses 4 to 48. The first thing that we see, the first truth that we encounter, the first reality that we see in this particular portion of Scripture is this. Jesus wanted to redirect the life story of this woman. He wanted to redirect her life story by engaging her in a conversation. A substantial conversation, a life-changing conversation. You see, the Bible is a book of conversations. From Genesis to Revelation, the pages of Scripture are replete with the conversations that God had with his people. And we see this reality consummately embodied in the life of Christ. Jesus had 132 conversations with various people in the Gospels. Six were in the synagogue, four were in the temple, and 122 were out there in the common places of this world. And what appeared to be an ordinary conversation at an ordinary well ended up changing the life of a woman and the destiny of an entire city. It ended up changing the life of a woman and the destiny of an entire city. Conversations that matter. Conversations that are substantial. Conversations that can literally alter life stories. 
John Wesley, the father of Methodism, once said, Whenever in the course of a conversation I have the choice of determining the topic of discussion, I make every effort, every effort to speak about spiritual things. About spiritual things. Now this does not mean that we Christians cannot have casual conversations. Yes, we can have conversations about weekend plans, about the stock market, about going to the movies and some of the other things that we usually talk about. But at some point in the course of the conversation, especially when it's with a non-Christian, do you ever begin to converse about things that really matter? Things about the deep issues of life, substantial conversations that can bring about change and alter the life course of that person. You see, substantial conversations not only reveal who God is, more importantly, they reveal who we really are. Jesus began the conversation with a casual request for water, and he ended it by talking about living waters that flow from a river that will never run dry. Substantial conversations reveal not only who God is, they reveal who we are at the core of our being. Muhammad Ali, the great boxer, was never known to be humble in his early years. And he was flying somewhere with a couple of his friends. And the plane that he was in began to toss about because of the turbulence that it was experiencing. The pilot came on the intercom and asked everyone to fasten their seatbelts. Everyone complied except Ali. Everyone did, but Ali didn't want to do it. One of the flight attendants seeing this decided to go up to him and to engage him in a conversation. She went up to him and she said, Mr. Ali, you heard the pilot, the plane is tossing about, why don't you put on the seatbelt for your own safety? Ali looked at her and with a smirk on his face, he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Without missing a beat, the flight attendant said, Superman don't need no plane either, now fasten your seatbelt. Substantial conversations don't just reveal who God is. They also have a way of revealing who we really are. Jesus engaged this woman in a substantial conversation, in a life-changing conversation. You see, by engaging her in a conversation, Jesus broke through every barrier and boundary that had been erected. Cultural, social, religious, gender issues, he broke right through it in order to affirm her worth, her dignity, and her value in the eyes of God. By engaging this Samaritan woman in a conversation, Jesus made it clear that pride, privilege, prestige, position, power, authority, social status, class systems, caste consciousness, and whatever else we might think of are ultimately non-values within the scope and the scheme of the kingdom. The question is, the question is, are we willing to follow him? Are we willing to follow him? Soren Kierkegaard, the great Danish philosopher, once said, it's much easier to admire Christ than to follow Christ. Do you just admire him or do you follow him? Do we follow Christ? Do we see people as he sees? Do we feel as he feels? Do we think as he thinks? Do we dispense love and grace and mercy as he does? Are we willing to engage them 
in substantial conversations today. Jesus looks at her and he says, give me a drink. Give me a drink. He was essentially saying, give me a drink. Give me your perspective. Give me your vantage point. Show me what you found. Before I begin to tell you about the true and living God, I want to know about the gods who have failed in your life. Before I tell you about living waters, I want to know about the waters you draw from this well, only to come away empty and thirsty again. And it all began, it all began with a conversation. With a conversation. Are we willing to engage people? Are we willing to engage them beyond a mere greeting and a goodbye? Are we willing to engage them in life-changing conversations? You see, we're talking about a God who wants to redirect and reform our lives and our life stories, imbuing it with meaning and significance and vitality it never had. That is what he was doing in the life of the Samaritan woman. And he begins it by engaging her in a conversation. Then he moves her to the point of confirmation. He moves her to the point of confirmation. Jesus says, give me a drink. She looks at him and she says, you are a Jew. I am a Samaritan. How then are you asking me for a drink? Jesus responds by saying, if only you knew the gift of God, you would be the one doing the asking and he would have given you living waters. At this point, her response is typical. She looks at Jesus and she asks him, where are you gonna get this water from? The well is deep, you have nothing to draw with. And then she asks him a very pointed question. Are you really greater than our father Jacob? Are you really greater than our father Jacob? She was essentially asking him, are you really greater than our father Jacob to provide an alternative? Can you really do something different? Can you really do the impossible? Are you really telling me the truth? Jesus, I've lived a life of lies. I've been cheated by men, by situations, and by circumstances. This is my life story. I don't even trust myself. How am I supposed to trust this incredible claim that you're making? How can I get my confirmation that what you're saying is in fact the truth? A young man was dating a girl, and he was feeling especially romantic, and he decided to write her a love letter. And this is what he wrote. Dear sweetheart, if the world were as hot as the Sahara Desert, I would crawl through the burning sand and come to you. If the world were like the Atlantic Ocean, I would swim through shark-infested waters and come to you. I will stand by your side and fight the fiercest dragon. On the bottom of the note it said, I'll see you on Thursday if it doesn't rain. Beautiful words, marvelous words, wonderful words can always be spoken. But can they be confirmed within the crucible of human experience? Jesus looks at her and he says, I didn't just come here to have a casual conversation with you about the facts of life like thirst and water. I came to have a life-changing conversation with you by giving you waters that will quench your thirst, not just for a moment, but for a lifetime. But for a lifetime. 
Notice the change in her response in verse 15. Please look at your Bibles. John chapter 4, verse 15. She moves into the process of confirmation as she addresses him as sir. And as they keep talking, she addresses him as a prophet. She began the conversation by saying, you are a Jew. And then she addresses him as sir. And then she addresses him as a prophet. And then she identifies him as the savior of the world. As the true Messiah. And there is confirmation that he is indeed who he said he was. As the narrative progresses, as the story progresses, she comes to the conclusion and she gets the confirmation that Jesus is who he said he was. C.S. Lewis in one of his books writes that the confirmation of who Christ said he was is an inevitable conclusion that anyone who looks at his life and his claims has to come to. He moves her to the point of confirmation. Conversation, confirmation, and then gently and graciously, he moves her to the point of conviction. He's redirecting her life story, and he moves her to a very critical point, the point of conviction. Conviction. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, once said, Many an earnest fool has driven a soul to hell in his endeavor to drag it to heaven by force. For human wills yield not to such force, but rebel the more. Souls have to be brought to salvation by a graciousness and a gentleness such as the master used when he fascinated the Samaritan woman into eternal life and enticed her to the truth. When he fascinated the Samaritan woman into eternal life and enticed her to the truth. Jesus looks at her and says, go call your husband. She says, I have none. And Jesus says, you actually have five. And the man you're now with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. And he begins to unravel the sin in her life. He begins to point out the sin in her life. This is Christ in all his glory and splendor and mission. He didn't come to run away from sinners. He didn't come to join in the scoffing and the whispering. He didn't come to do that which is already being done. He came to do that which no one else can do. He came to save sinners. He came to save the world. He came to be with those, to be with those who had no business hoping to be a part of God's kingdom. He came to this woman in her hour of greatest need, and he comes to us. He comes to us even today, in the context of our own life stories. You see, when you and I sometimes convince ourselves to abandon hope, when we're up against the mountain of impossibility, when we walk the valley of despair, when we feel that God could never forgive us for some sin that we've committed in our lives, when we get to that point in our lives, remember this woman at the well. Remember who it is you're talking to. Remember that he will pursue you just like he pursued her till he makes you his own. A God who loves us to the point where he will not let us go. That is why Francis Thompson, the great English poet, called him the hound of heaven. The one who pursues you. The one who pursues me. Never let us go. You see, by talking to her about sin, Jesus made it clear that sin has to be dealt with. 
Sin always has to be dealt with. You see, people may talk about racial issues and cultural issues and economic issues and social issues, and we hear about all of these important and pertinent issues on the news constantly. We can talk about what happened in Charlottesville for days. We can talk about what's happening in the UK and in Europe and maybe in India. But the basic fundamental issue, that which breaks us at the deepest levels of conscience and common sense, the problem is still sin, and the answer is still found only in Christ. The problem is not that we are bad. The problem is that we are dead, absolutely dead in our sins. And Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Dead people live. For he not only has life-giving power, he has resurrection power. David Brainerd, the great missionary, once said, Infinite pity touched the heart of the Father of mercies, and infinite wisdom laid the plan of our recovery. Right where you're seated, in the quietness of your heart, is God convicting you today of some area in your life some sin in your life that you need to confess before him. Sin always has to be dealt with. Karl Barth, the great theologian, once said, God wills to be God in Jesus, not only in the heights, but also in the depths, in the depths of human creatureliness, sinfulness, and mortality. By pointing out that one sin in her life Jesus made it possible for her to see her entire life story in the light of God's holiness. A holy God who had come near. A holy God who had embraced her. A holy God who loved her. A holy God who forgave her. A forgiving God in an unforgiving world. Carl Menninger, the great psychiatrist, once said that if he could only convince the patients in his wards, in all of his wards, if he could only convince them that their sins were forgiven, he said that 75% of them would walk out the next day. 75% of them would walk out the next day if only they knew that their sins were forgiven, if only they knew that there was a Savior who loved them with an everlasting love. That is why William Cooper wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. He brings her graciously and gently and lovingly and mercifully to the point of conviction in order to redirect and to reform her life story. Conversation, confirmation, conviction, and then we get to the question of adulation or worship. She looks at Jesus and she wonders, maybe this man who has started a conversation with me Maybe this man who has brought about the confirmation of who he is, maybe this man who has moved me to the point of conviction might also be someone who can shed some light on the nature of adulation or worship. On the nature of adulation or worship. And she looks at him and she asks him this question. 
where is God and how do I worship him? My people say he's on this mountain. Your people say he's in Jerusalem. I really don't know where God is. I wish I could have seen the face of Christ at that moment. Of all the places to find a hungry heart, he had found one in Samaria. Of all the people to be looking for God, a woman. And of all the ones to receive the secret of the ages, an outcast among outcasts. Jesus begins to tell her about the reality of God and the nature of worship. He tells her that the center of worship will neither be this mountain or that mountain. The center of worship will be the human heart, for life itself is coextensive with worship. A life that is centered on him. A life story that gains its meaning from him is coextensive with worship. And then he tells her that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. One without the other is not true worship. You see, the Samaritans worshipped in spirit, but at the expense of truth. The Jews worshipped in truth, but not in the right spirit. One without the other is not true worship. All expressions of worship are not acceptable to God. All expressions of worship are not acceptable to God. You see, the expressions of what you and I feel during worship must be in alignment with the submission of all that we are. Biblical worship demands submission along with expression. Too often we've reduced worship to spirited expression at the expense of truth and at the expense of submission. Biblical worship always demands submission from your life and mine. A life story of submission. That is why I love the grand definition given by Archbishop William Temple about worship. He said, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind by his truth, the purifying of the imagination by his beauty, the opening of heart to his love, and the submission of will to his purposes. All of this gathered up in adoration is the greatest expression of which we as human beings are capable. God is not just looking for a holy place of worship. He's looking for holy worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. He answers her the question of adulation. And then he moves her to the reality of salvation. Conversation, confirmation, conviction, adulation, and salvation. She begins to talk about the Messiah. Please look at your Bibles. She begins to talk about the Messiah. And Jesus looks at her and he says, I am he. I am he. He never revealed this to King Herod. He didn't reveal this in the courts of Rome. He didn't call a meeting of the Sanhedrin and tell them the news. It was in a shaded well, in a rejected land, to an ostracized woman that he revealed the secret, I am he. Have you come with burdens in your heart? Have you come with questions in your mind? I can satisfy the longings of your heart, each and every longing in your heart. And I can meet the demands of your mind, I am he. I wonder how she felt at that moment. She must have felt as Peter felt. 
when he faced Christ, a sinner in the presence of a holy God, a God who had come near, a God who had come near. Kierkegaard said, do you really think it's a great thing for God to create the universe out of nothing? I'll tell you something greater that he does. I'll tell you something greater that he does. He graciously and lovingly and mercifully creates saints out of sinners. He still does that. He still does that. Because he enters our life story. He enters our world, our situations, our circumstances, right here in the now. A God who enters my weakness, a God who enters my pain, a God who enters my brokenness, a God who enters my tears. As many of you know, I was in England just a few weeks ago. I had the wonderful privilege of speaking at Oxford University. And then on Sunday, I was taken to a church in central London, a beautiful sanctuary, beautiful cathedral, where George Handel used to play the organ. But underneath its beauty, were people who had gathered with burdens that they could not bear and the pain that they could not live with. All of it. After I preached, dozens of them came and spoke to me. We had an outreach program for the youth after the conclusion of the service, and I addressed the theme of the relevance of God in contemporary times. And after it was over, the young people came and spoke to me, and they thanked me for the message of hope for these perilous times for all that they were facing. As I was about to leave that venue, a woman in her mid-fifties got a hold of my hand and she pulled me to the side and she asked me if she could speak to me for a few minutes. We sat down and she began sobbing. She began crying uncontrollably and she began to recount her life story. A wonderful marriage, great career, beautiful baby boy who had become a young man. But in the last two years, everything changed. Two years ago, she contracted a disease that left her disabled. And I could see that one of her arms was twisted in, and she walked with an obvious limp. Two years ago, everything changed, she said as she was sobbing. I don't know how everything so good should have gone so bad. I never noticed, I never saw that this could happen in my life. I've been living a life of pain, of sorrow, of despair. I felt that my life was not worth living. I didn't want to live anymore. Did God really care? Did he see me in my situation, in my circumstance? Does he know what's happening in my life? Her husband left her and started a relationship with another woman. How could everything go so wrong in my life? I didn't want to live anymore. I felt so rejected. I felt so scorned. What kind of life am I living, she said. But then she said, I got the assurance today that there is a God who loves me, that there is a God who cares about me, that there is a God who will never reject me, that I am his daughter, that he has made me with a purpose and a destiny in mind. And I'm leaving today knowing that he has given me a new beginning. What do you tell a person who feels that they have come to the end of their life story? I told her before praying with her, Dear sister, your life story is not over. 
Your life story is not over. God is graciously and lovingly and mercifully going to write the next chapters of your life. And he will bring you through. He will bring you through. A God who will never desert you. A God who will never walk away from you. A God who forgives you of all your sins and cleanses you and makes you his own. And makes you his own. Annie Flint Johnson wrote that beautiful hymn. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure, his power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and he giveth and he giveth again. He pours into your life, he pours into my life over and over again. A God who forgives and forgives and gives. Please look at verse 28. You notice something very significant happening. She leaves the water jar behind as she runs back to the city. Please hear me. She left the burden that was always part of her life story at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, and ran back to, a, to the city as a woman who was freed from the harassment of her past. She left the burden at the feet of Jesus and ran back to the city as a woman who was free from the harassment of her past. In the quietness of your heart, I want to ask you this question. What burden, what burden in your life do you need to leave at the feet of Jesus today? What burden is defining your life story? The master, the savior is saying to you, lovingly, graciously, and gently, leave that burden at my feet and live as a free man, live as a free woman. That's the life I've called you to. That's the life story I want to give you. A life not harassed by the weakness and the failures of the past. She ran back to the city with a sense of joy and a sense of real hope. And she probably stopped the first person that she saw on the street and she probably told him this, I've just met a man. I've just met a man who knows everything about my life, every single gory detail. But do you know what the wonderful thing is? He still loves me anyway. He still loves me anyway. His love for me has not changed. He still loves me anyway. A love that literally goes beyond the highest star and reaches down to the lowest hell. A love that declares that every life story can be renewed. Every life story can be redeemed. Every life story can be healed. Every life story can be saved for the glory of God. And her experience of salvation immediately, immediately moved her to mission. To mission. Conversation, confirmation, conviction, adulation, salvation, and finally and quickly, mission. Please look at your Bibles. She wanted to tell everyone about Jesus. It's very simple. Her life had been redirected. She now had a new life story, and she wanted to tell everyone, 
every single person that she met, she wanted to tell them about Jesus. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. And as we conclude this service, I want to ask you this important question. What, or more importantly, who are you giving away in your life today? Who are you giving away in your life today? She wanted to give him away. She wanted to give him away. She went back to the city and she said, come and see this man that I've met. And then as you read on, you see that the villagers came and they saw Christ and they saw that he indeed was the savior of the world, that he indeed was the Messiah. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one like him. S.M. Lockridge once said, he is the greatest phenomenon to have crossed the horizon of the earth. He is God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the loftiest idea in literature, the highest personality in philosophy, the fundamental doctrine of pure theology. He is the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. And this savior is calling you and I into his mission. Into his mission. To tell the people in this world that there is a God who has created them with a purpose in mind. And he longs for an intimate relationship with them. An intimate relationship with them. That's the heartbeat of the Christian. That is the mission of the church. You see, the transaction was absolutely fascinating. She had come as one who wanted to quench her thirst for a moment and went as one whose thirst was quenched for a lifetime. She had come as one who was broken and went back as one who was made whole. She had come as one who was rejected and went back as one who was accepted. She had come as one whose life story was torn apart by sin and shame and went back with a new life story of joy and hope. But you know what the wonderful thing is as I conclude this evening? The fact of the matter is that 2,000 years later, Jesus offers you and I that same reality. He's sitting right by the wells that you and I frequent even today. In our own lives, wells of success, wells of prosperity, wells of security, and the various wells that we frequent to draw water from it, only to come away thirsty and empty again. And he's sitting right by those wells, and he looks at us with the same compassion with which he looked at the Samaritan woman, and he offers us what he offered her. Come to me. Drink of the water that I give, and you'll never, ever go thirsty again. Conversation, confirmation, conviction, adulation, salvation, and mission. May we move closer to God and move others in this journey of life. Just as the master moved the Samaritan woman, graciously, gently, lovingly, and patiently, till she made the greatest discovery and came face to face, face to face, with the greatest reality of her life, Christ himself, who offered her and who offers us a life worth living and a story, a story worth telling. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you once again. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the cross and we thank you for the empty grave. Thank you for speaking to us, Lord. Help us not only to be hearers of the word, help us to be doers of the word. We commit our lives into your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.